Thinking and you're listening to Thinking Off-Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off-Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm catching up with the former British Alpine ski racer turned photographer, Conrad Bartelski, who became a second place World Cup champion in 1981. His spectacular performance remains the best British result on the Alpine Ski World Cup circuit to this day. So Conrad, what inspired you to get into Alpine ski racing? Well, when I was a, a small three-year-old boy, my father took me and my brother out to the to Kitspool to go skiing. And that all started during the war. Um, my father was born in Poland and in 1939, he literally escaped out from Warsaw with the Russians a couple of kilometers on the, to, the, to the east of him and the Germans a couple of kilometers to the right. And he finally made it through to um, United Kingdom very long story that I've only heard secondhand because I wasn't awake when he told it to my brother and my mother. Anyway, what was uh, special about that is he was a pilot and he was finishing off his flight training in Canada in Medicine Hat. And on their days off, they would um, go off to Banff and Lake Louise on the train and the bus. And he actually had eight millimeter films in color from those visits, which is kind of special to now, we take video for granted now, but we're talking about 1941, 1940-41, to have some colour film of my father when he was, you know, just about 19, 20 years old. Wow, that's such a memory. Yeah, it's very special, that. But he, he then saw the mountains there and he said, when I have a family, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to take my family to the mountains in winter and teach them to ski. So that's how I ended up in Kitzbühel as a three-year-old. That's so sweet. Um, how much skiing were you doing at that age with your family? Well, we would go, we would have a one week holiday every year, except for one, which was probably about when I was, I think, six or seven. And so we'd go and we'd literally have six days. I would remember we'd get a, a ski school coupon, which had four light blue blocks on it. And each day you turned off a square. And so you start off with one and give it to the ski teacher. And then you came down to your last one, give it to my ski teacher. I knew it'd be another 12 months before I went skiing again. In January, the Kitzbühel town is getting ready for the big famous Hanningham race. And the ski instructors will be talking about it. And eventually, I think when I was 10, I persuaded my parents to allow me to to extend a holiday. So we had a slightly longer holiday, which included watching the race and um, as I stood by the three foot high picket fencing, hardly able to see over the top, the ski instructor I had with me that day, which wasn't a normal person I learned to ski with, but he's, he, the Aga Khan was racing for Great Britain those days. And he came down about 15, 20, if not more seconds behind the fastest Austrians and the ski instructor said, well, after the show, you bring on the clowns and um that's outrageous well it's 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 in some ways it was true because they were coming so far behind and it was the landed gentry who were skiing for great britain those days it was the people with double barrel names or you know aga khan obviously had enough money to finance his ski days and i just felt well okay this is something that um and you know, this is a mission for me. I have to show it's possible somebody from Great Britain can actually compete with the Austrians at their own game. And that that 
my mind was made up when I was 10 years old. And then um, in 1972, I got selected to go to the Olympics in Sapporo as a 17-year-old. What was that experience like for you, especially knowing that millions of people were at home watching you on TV for the Olympics? Oh, it's daunting, hugely daunting. I remember standing in the opening ceremony. It was a beautiful sunny day and the opening ceremony was held in the speed skating track and all the teams were lined up there and the British, and I was standing around the back of the British ski team and I noticed we had one of the biggest teams there. All right. And, yeah. and, and, and yeah, it was, it was quite awe-inspiring to be standing there knowing that millions of people around the world were, were watching. Then we got into the competitions and, and I remember getting down to the bottom on the races and, the, and one of the British officials said, oh, congratulations. Why? You know, I hadn't been particularly fast, been embarrassingly slow. Well, you finished. Well done. You finished the race. Well, okay. Um, it wasn't really what I thought we should be doing there. And I actually came back from there with the British having the biggest team. And most of the people there were having quite a good time and enjoying it I, I didn't see a real sense of competitiveness about people they saw it as a not you know a nice thing to become an olympian and then go home and uh probably a good cocktail party story it was for me, their friends how did you feel after you finished your run if it, there was no sort of competitive um atmosphere and it was more camaraderie was that like a disappointing feeling in a way or i was totally disappointed you know and and and, and um, I had, you know, I saw the Spanish of guys that we I got to know the Spanish races over the last couple of years quite well. And one of the guys went and won this slalom, the gold medal, which was a memorable historic moment. And it was great to be part of that and to witness it. Yeah, that is what I wanted to do. And that's that. And that's, you know, and, and I when I got off the plane back from Tokyo, I had to go back to school, which is I, I walked into my class, into my school and then it's my classroom and 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 as if and nobody said a thing and i sat down at wow. my desk and my teacher said right he said you better get your head down you've got a bit of work to do and there was no mention about the olympics at all or anything which was which was fine because there shouldn't be but it, yeah. it wouldn't happen in this day and age no of course not there's been a massive sort of culture shift i guess because the world's become so digital perhaps i'm not sure yes it, it was it was it was kind of special anyway so but i came back and said right i will never go back to the olympics unless we can be competitive and i don't think we should send athletes to the olympics unless we're competitive for that attitude has now become the norm and team gp has become hugely successful and in the winter olympics we're now having a lot more success because of that attitude so it's nice to see that change happening of but course we, we had to do that and then that April was the British Senior Championships, which were being held in Scotland. And for the first time ever, we'd invited some Austrian international races, some French international races over. And um, for three weeks, me and Peter Fuchs and Willie Bailey, two close friends of mine, we worked together with a, a ski instructor there who was working for Peter's father at the Austrian Ski School. And we worked really hard. And in the races, we did pretty well actually we beat a few of these foreigners who we never used to get close to so we'd made quite a step forward and um, it might have been facilitated by the fact that the the, the the Austrians and the French were taken to the whiskey factories to sample some of the really? local <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious but, uh, you know they, it, it just was we suddenly saw that we could be competing with these people we 
So we decided then, right, the only way to do this is to work every day that God's given us. And we decided from June the 20th that year, we would just train every day of our lives. And then two years later, we had Peter and I were both in the top 20 in the World Championships in St. Moritz. What an impeccable trajectory and journey you went on. Can you tell me a bit more about the training you went through over the course of this time to prepare yourself for the Olympics? Well, for the Olympics, it was which we did a little bit of skiing in October, a little bit in November. I wouldn't say there was an awful lot. We we had um, we were sent off for a week dry land in um, Wales to toughen us up. Um, but it was it, it was very unscientific. And did your training sort of clash with your full time education, or did they oh, yes. sort of work together? No, 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 totally. <laughs> and I came back to the Olympics and in, in mid February and said, "Okay, well, I've got my levels." And my teacher said, "What A levels?" I said, "Well, I'm going to do my levels. I'm doing some. We haven't mentioned you for them." Oh. <laughs> anyway, I. I I did do them. I didn't do brilliantly well at them because I'd missed probably about four months of schooling. Um, so the following year, what I decided to do is I would then, um, from June the twentieth, um, train every day until the end of March, and then in April I would go to a grammar school in London and do um, eight weeks of schooling to do my A levels. So it was, you know, it was everything was squashed in together. Yeah, you really had to drive it yourself as well. I can imagine now there's a lot of tolerance to make sure that young young kids and that are competing at the level that level also have maybe a background in their education too. Whereas I feel like you had to sort of pioneer the path to yourself there. Well I wasn't allowed to I wasn't allowed to ski unless I had got my exams and my parents were very specific about that. Um, but they weren't specific about me having to go to school every day to do it. As long as I found a solution to it, then, I, then we could do it. So I got the first year of training was hard and we spent the first six months, most of the time, just running up and down mountains, in and out of gyms. We had a, a, this instructor who worked with us. He had some innovative ideas in the gyms and we were doing a lot of uh, balance training, a lot of stuff that you see on YouTube these days. We were already doing back in 1972. So he was very innovative for those days. And that's enabled us to progress to the extent that we could compete, actually, as I said, in the World Championships. And we had the first um, top 15 in a World Championship for male skier in, in the downhill, and which is me and St. Moritz. And then Peter Fuchs had 19. So that's, we had two in the top 20. That's exceptional. Can you take me back to 1975 when you competed in the downhill race? Is it in France? It was the last time that they had a race there. They haven't had a really? race, ever race since there yet. Well, a lot to do with my accident. Can you describe what the jumps were like on the World Cup circuit that day? Well, World Cup skiing was a lot... Um, more authentic. It was a lot raw and wilder. There was no piste bashes. The runs weren't necessarily smooth. It was, you were skiing the natural terrain a lot more and there'd be soldiers boot packing to make sure that it didn't cut up too much. Sounds was, dangerous. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's, yeah, there were straw bales and not safety nets. And the straw <laughs> bales were, set, were soft for the first day or two of ski training. But as soon as you started spraying some snow on it, they froze up pretty hard and they were quite icy. So yeah, there was, it was, it was interesting times, it was challenging times, but 
that was the task in hand and we had to deal with it. And we got to Majev and um, I'd been skiing pretty solidly that year. Pretty, pretty, pretty happy the way things were going. I'd done the pre-Olympic downhill in Innsbruck and that had, had gone quite well. I mean, I think it's not brilliant, but I, I was, I think, 25th or so, 22nd, 25th, I think, or something in that, um, which this day and age would be World Cup points, but in those days, they only gave World Cup points the top 10. And I got to Majev and I had to start number 16 because I was racing in the second group. My dream was to be in the top 15, but, and it'd been quite wet and rained a bit the day before, but on race day, it froze hard. And guys were going down, Clamour crashed in the corner and he'd won all the races up to then. Werner Grissman, one of the Austrians, uh, some other, another, another Swiss guy, another Austrian, they all crashed. There was a jump over a road. So you had to jump over the road, land the other side. Um, but because it's got icy, things were going a lot faster and people were jumping further and they were jumping onto the flat. And so they're hitting the flat quite hard. And the word came up from my coach that just open up a bit earlier so you don't jump so far by the jump. And I did that. And as I flew over, the backs of my skis caught the road and it just catapulted me straight onto my head. So I hit... Crikey. Landed straight on my head with about um, 75, 80 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, not, I mean, I was knocked out. Yeah, that's and, terrifying. Um, well, not really, because I didn't know what had happened. <laughs> I didn't know about Next thing I knew, I woke up at um, six o'clock in the evening in the hospital when, when Peter Fuchs and his girlfriend came to see me. And um, she, she didn't dare look at my face. And I put my hand up to my face and it was sort of got Oh, no. Super swollen. What did your family and friends say or think at the time? In those days, ski racing was, was a must watch and it was very, very popular on television. And um, I never thought anything about it, really. I, I was in hospital and I just wanted to get back and get skiing again. And so I, after, after being in hospital for a week, eventually uh, the mother of a friend of mine in Geneva came and picked me up and took me to the airport. And I remember walking through passport control and giving the Swiss customs man my passport. And he opened my passport and he looked at me and he looked at my face and he thought he'd seen a ghost. Like, here's the walking dead. Because I understood later the Swiss television was saying that I died. Because I was I'd had the crash, I was lying there. The helicopter had flown off taking some French dignitary back to have his lunch. And That's so there was crazy. No, yeah, there was no safety helicopter there. And I was sitting there, uh, or lying there, um, having swallowed my tongue. And at first, nobody was even deep. There were no doctors or anything, medics. And I was turning blue and the technical delegate from Switzerland, he came down and actually pulled the tongue out from my throat. It's a story I only found out about eight years ago when he said, look, it's been long enough. I can tell you the truth now. <gasps> That's insane. So uh, the Swiss thought I was dead. My, uh, my parents were watching the race. It was 50-50. I think my mother thought I died and my and my dad thought I'd be all right, but you know, it was it, it was would have been a terrible time for them. So to be, for that to be such public knowledge as well. Forty-five minutes of television coverage is, is is great. An Italian ski racing friend of mine, lovely guy, Owen Stricker, came in the next day just to say hi, how are you? And he said, "Why?" Well, patting me on the back, said, "That's brilliant." If you're not winning the race, it's the next best thing you can do. You, I think you'll get a, 
You'll get ski, ski contract next year and some sponsorship. I said, oh, great. That'll be helpful. I'll be able to help pay for my training. And he was right. I did. That's hilarious. Publicity. But I was, um, you know, I was unconscious for a time. And um, I did race four weeks later. Um, I shouldn't have. In this day and age, I wouldn't have been allowed to race for six months because there was a concussion. What what kind of effect did the accident have on your confidence? How did you feel that first time you put your skis back on? Well, everybody said, uh, you know, after, you can't come back after a race like that. Hmm. Well, so first of all, everybody said you can't race fast because you're British. And then everybody said, okay, you've now had a crash. You can't, you know, you can't ever come back from a crash that severe. So I had two things to prove wrong, didn't I? And 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 so I went out four weeks later to do a second division race in Vila and I felt great, all fine. And the more I skied, the better I felt and had a look at the inspection and the course had a lot of big jumps in it and it was fine. A lot of the other races were very nervous and I was saying, well, you know, this is what I'm going to do and you have to commit to what you're doing. And yes, your mind does spin a little bit, but I knew that I wanted to ski and I wanted to race there. That's exceptional. Well, no, it's, it's, it's because that was my life. It was my passion and what drove me. And I, I wasn't going to let anything get in the way of me, be it British officials, British bureaucracy, not having any money, um, being told I could do it. So I, I got into this first run, and this is quite interesting because skiing is like riding a bike. And when I, when I pushed out the gate, I got into the first corner and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Forgot how to ski, as it were. Yeah, and then I got to the next corner and I didn't know what to do. And I was almost like having to sidestep around corners because I, I couldn't, I, I was completely out to lunch. I got down to the bottom by hook or by crook and, and, and at what, you know, my coach eventually came down and said, oh, you didn't ski that very well. And I sort of looked at him and I said, well, I, I, you know, I'm not doing the race this week. You know, and what I realized is that my brain was actually switching off because it was the wrong thing to be doing. It was an inst- my, my body was instinctively protecting yeah, me. It's telling you me. that it's not ready yet. But I did race the following week in front. <laughs> and, and I did come, I did finish ahead of all my teammates. So it was half. That's <laughs> impressive. So after this accident, take me forward now to the 13th of December in 1981. You were in Val Gardinia in Italy and you competed in the Alpine Ski World Cup circuit. Um, how were you feeling on this day building up to the race? Well, you know, there have been a lot of ups and downs in those years because um, I was on a great plane until that accident and then things started to go up and down a bit and yes your confidence is not going to be as strong as it is and you try what you can do i had issues with the coaches that, at the time because they had they weren't progressing they weren't managing my situation in a way which would have been constructive and then came to valgadena and again trained really hard that year i was really feeling strong and fit we had my first race in Val and for the first time in my life that year, I had a ski service man who looked after my skis. And the first race in Val was terrible. We, the skis were very slow and I was way behind and very disappointed. So I was a bit frustrated. I got to Val Gardena and in practice, things hadn't gone brilliant. I wasn't under the impression the skis were running hugely well. And um, I woke up in the morning feeling a bit fluey. I just heard on the radio that 
there's been some issues with the Russians in Poland and I was worried about my uncle over there. So everything was wrong. Okay. And I was not inspired. I was, I, I, I really, all I wanted to do was get to the next race, put this one behind me. And I got into the start hut and, I, and, and he said, look, these skis will be great to find whatever. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to put my head down. I'm not going, you know, I, I, just so people don't think I'm scared. I'll just, I'm just going to go down, but um, all I want to do is just get onto the next race and put this one behind me. So for the first time in my life, I didn't try my best. I didn't stand in the start and die for queen and country, you know, push out the start with energy and power. I just, I went out and just did, did what I thought I'd, you know, I said, just keep my head down so the coaches wouldn't say, why are you going down, standing up? You know, what's wrong with you? I just didn't try. I didn't try my best. So your morale was quite low that day. When you were standing on the start line about to go, do you remember what you were thinking about? Yeah, there's a, there's a sports psychologist I'd met that summer through uh, Rothman's. One of the things he, he asked me, he said, why do you train? I said, well, to improve and get better. He said, you train to develop your instinctive muscle memory. Because your muscles, your muscles react three times quicker than your brain. So if you're thinking on the way down what you're doing, you're slowing yourself down. It's an interesting thought process. So I, the, the thought I had in my start, I said, well, okay, guy was called Dr. Phil Fear. And it's okay, Phil, I'm going to, you know, you said, I don't have to think. As I said, I'll just put my head down and see what happens. And when I crossed the finish line, I had an instinctive reaction that I didn't know how I could go faster. So I didn't want to see what my time was because I would have been very depressed if I'd been two seconds slower. But which is what I was expecting. So I wouldn't have known how I could have gone two seconds faster. So, But eventually I looked up. There's a bit of a noise in the finish area. So I looked up at my time and it was 2.07. I knew 2.07 was the quickest. So I thought, well, oh, 2.07, if I'm within seconds, I'm going to be in the top 10. So I can't, I can't be and I better sort of pretend <laughs> so I sort of put my hands up a bit I, and one, one of the Swiss guy came to me you silly idiot he said why you, you, that mistake you made at the bottom you would you should have won the race said, what what he said you, you know so where did I finish it's second what yeah, so, um, instinctively I didn't know how I could go faster that's right, because I couldn't have gone faster. But up until that last jump, which was 50 yards from the finish, I was one-tenth ahead. I lost two-tenths on that last jump. I could have fallen, like in my first race, so it could have been worse. And I lost two-tenths, and I finished 11 hundredths behind, which is one-tenth of a second. So that was unusual. It was, but it was just a relief um, in many ways, because I've been working for 12 years now, solid and totally committed to the cause. And people were saying, oh, it was lucky, it was this, and they still say to this day it was fluky and the numbers go faster later on. They always talk about that. And I was reading an article um, recently in a Swiss paper, and my, my father cut it out in the sport magazine that actually did um, a review of that race. And they actually pointed out that the last of paragraphs said, oh, yes, it was surprising, it was interesting, but... It's very interesting to see that the year before, Conrad was always very fast on the top part of this course in Val Gadena, and I didn't even know that. I mean, it's amazing how little information I was given wow. by my 
which is or my coach that so I So that's had. a comparative piece from previous like previous yeah, well, he did from the year before. So the, 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 the Swiss journalist was the one person that got it right. I mean, I... I, I fantastic. Most racers who do well in Valgadena always ski well there. And I've always skied well in Valgadena. I've always had a lot of my better results there. Yeah. But once, this one Swiss journalist picked it out. And I look at the video now, and I did ski it very well. And the reason I did ski it well is because I didn't try to ski well. Yeah, your mind was just focused on what your body was doing almost, or your muscle memory. I just, I was just concentrating on the line as opposed to trying to ski. And I just let the skis do the talking rather than, you know, feeling that I had to do something special to go faster. Yeah. In that moment, you became the first British male to stand on a World Cup downhill podium. How did you feel when they raised the Union Jack up on the podium? Well, that was, that, that was mind-blowing that's what i always wanted to have that's what i dreamt about as a kid yeah is having a union jack going up in the olympic podium um i missed i didn't achieve that um but this was in some ways just as better there's there's, there's 10 austrians that race in the olympic <laughs> 24 so yeah. i've beaten i've beaten nine austrians instead of just beating four austrians you know all the best skiers are there the, the, valgadena is known as one of the tougher courses on the circuit it is a challenge, and it was it was amazing. The, the, the funniest thing was those <laughs> that when they were raising the flag, they didn't have normally. You know, you get the national anthem getting played. Well, they didn't have "God Save the Queen" because <laughs> they didn't have a record of it lying around it. Because in those days, they used to have to play records. So that's insane. So they that kind of just shows that they didn't anticipate that result at all. And then it like the underlying stigma is just brought out by. The fact that they didn't even keep a copy of it, maybe. No, no, it was, it was, it was, it was hysterically funny like that. <laughs> but it, it did make the next race the toughest because then people were all looking at me to see how I got on, and yeah, I was, I was determined to make it into the top fifteen, which I did by hook. I snuck in fifteenth place in Cramontana, which then put me ranked in the top fifteen group of the world, which is what my ambition was to have a British ski racer ranked in there, and it wasn't till. Uh, I mean, Dave Riding came along that we now have somebody regularly skiing in the first group. <laughs> um, do you think that skiing became more popular and more accessible amongst the British after this time? Well, it was in when Ski Sunday started, and we're debating whether it's 77 or 78, but Ski Sunday came about because of Frank's Clammer's um, dramatic race in the Olympics in 1976, which mm -hmm. 76 in book, which really caught the imagination of the wider public. He was like Tiger Woods, has, what has Tiger Woods has done for golf, Franz Klammer did for ski racing in, the, in, in that race in 76. And, and David Vine and Ron Pickering were working at the Olympics, said it wouldn't be great if we had a show that did a highlights of the races. And so that's how Ski Sunday got born. But they got to justify it because there was a Brit taking part in competing. And I was, although I was in the second group, I was at least... In, in striking distance of, of, of being able to justify the BBC, British Broadcast Corporation, covering a foreign sport. And it was incredible, the interest that suddenly came from it. It was, it was very popular because it would get played out at four o'clock or five o'clock or six o'clock in the evening. And, and it was a, it was a go-to, because there's only three channels in those days, it was a go-to thing to watch it on BBC Two. And it was hugely popular. There's millions of people watching it. And David Vine did a great job of bringing it 
to the homes of the great unwashed in, in, in England and or Great Britain so that he, he made it accessible to people. And as a result, um, yes, skiing took off. Um, when I, when I, I remember when I retired from skiing and I, and I came back from summer in January and I was in Gatwick and every conveyor belt was full of kids coming back, school kids in school term, going for a week's holiday. Yeah. And 250,000 school kids went skiing, I think it was in, in 1985. So they had an opportunity. And this is not public school children. This is state school and everywhere. And then, you know, I was getting into taxis and taxi drivers saying, oh, yeah, I went skiing last year. It was brilliant. And so, yeah, it did, it did have a huge impact on the, on the sudden growth of British skiing. And it was only in 1988 when the Conservative government introduced the Education Reform Act that that all came to a crashing end because there were a couple of paragraphs in a big, thick book that made it difficult to take children out in school term and therefore everything suddenly started to get more expensive again and that was one of the most stupid pieces of legislation I've ever come across in my life and that really as a result of that the feeder market for skiing has been reduced and the opportunity the opportunity for people from around the country from be it up in Newcastle you know if their parents were prepared to make a small sacrifice and get a couple hundred quid together, their kids would be able to learn about foreign currencies, foreign food, about geography, about um, mingling with in, a, in, in an activity. It didn't matter if you're tall, fat, thin, skinny, young. Everybody could share in the fun of it. And it was, it was such a valuable education. And to have that taken away from people, I think, is a huge loss. It's a shame because the price has skyrocketed in the small windows that people could actually get time off to take their kids away. Uh, It completely reduced the the possibility of sharing that in any other window of time, which is such a shame. Exactly. Throughout your career, and so both with your training and professional work, what do you think one of the best pieces of advice you received was? Well, the person who probably influenced me most in my skiing was a lady called Gitty Schatz. And she was uh, a, a young ski teacher. And um, did I? And my parents would, would said, if you're going skiing, you've always got to go with a ski teacher. They, they, you know, I said, I can't, can't me and my brother go on my own. I said, no, no, you know, you're going off with a ski teacher. And, and skiing with her was great because she wasn't talking about putting my right knee in front of my left hip and... Um, the technical aspects of it, everything was about a means to an end. So it was more like, let's work now, let's, let's ski a little bit more. And the, the better our skiing gets, means that we can go up the mountain and we can go to that. There's a lovely mountain hut over there with really good hot chocolate. <laughs> so the incentive was to get a good hot chocolate high up in the mountain in this mountain hut, not to go up and down a run and make sure that technically I could ski better. And so it, it, I, I got taught that it's the relationship with the mountain is more important than the relationship with the textbook. Yeah, okay. And so the philosophy of skiing is far more important than the um, textbook side of it. And, it's a, the, and as a result, skiing is actually very natural. We learn, everybody learns to ski um, when they're a year, a year and a half old, because all you're doing when you're skiing is keeping your balance. So as a baby, as soon as you 
understand how to keep your balance, then you are a skier because that's all skiing is about. It's just keeping your balance. It's not about how and what. Yes, you've got some tools by which you need to work and control. That's actually quite simple and logical. Uh, yeah. But as soon as you start thinking about what you're doing, you stop your body doing what you do naturally. And Val Gadena is a very good example of that. I was thinking about trying to go fast. I would stop my body doing what I actually was quite good at doing, which was going fast. I didn't know that at the time because I always thought I had to do more to be better. And the same applies when I'm going with people and helping people to improve their skiing. The first thing I ask people to do is to breathe, breathe out and exhale. Because the more your chest is relaxed, the better your balance will be. And the more you exhale and breathe out, better your rhythm will be and the further you'll be able to ski the less stress will be and you'll your body will actually get itself into a better position naturally and give you a better balance but no most people find it difficult to think that something that simple can be that useful it's a really interesting concept outside of your sort of downhill racing um obviously you've had a very accomplished career as a broadcaster you're also a successful photographer and you've been on many expeditions to remote corners of the world can i ask you about your touring your ski touring where are some of the destinations you've been to well ski touring is is, is quite funny when i was ski racing used to you know we used to have to walk up slaloms i then as i said in scotland when we first went there we had to walk up and down i used to hate that and i you know I couldn't understand why people didn't use ski lifts. And then when I was going on holidays, when I was, when I was working and I was going off family holidays and, and I was going with friends and they would grab a guide and I'd sort of sneak off with my friends and the guide occasionally. And we might go for uh, 45 minutes and climb up and I thought, God, and I started to realize and enjoy it because when we came down, it'd be quiet and interesting. And, and what I'd found is all these piece machines were, all they were doing is turning the mountains into motorways. And it wasn't what I remembered. I mean, when I was skiing in Kitzbühel, Gittish Schatz, you know, we would be skiing the mountain in lots of different places and as far away from, in those days they had runs, but they weren't really pieced. But we'd like to get away into the soft, fresh snow. And so I, I, I rekindled my enthusiasm for that. But it was, you know, it's hard work. And um, sitting behind a desk, you know, I'd ended up being on a bit of weight. And I remember skiing one year and I thought, oh God, this is what it's like being 50 and you know it's a downhill path from here but then a friend of mine I was skiing with there he, he he built this lodge in Norway and I just said I've got to do this and then you, you so you get on a boat you climb up and you ski down to the sea and I've got to do that that that, that really appeals to me and so I, I, I booked up some friends and 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 but I knew I had to do some work beforehand. So I bought some running shoes because I hate running. So I used to run to work and back and I put some work in and then I got out and arrived in Norway, which was stunning. I mean, unbelievable. We got out the first day and I have a picture of that first day in my, in, in my hallway. And after an hour, I was looking up this beautiful untouched snow. We'd stop for a rest cup of tea. And gosh, this is brilliant. But there was another two and a half hours of bloody hard work. It was, <laughs> it's so slow when you're ski touring. And yeah. it takes a long time to adjust to it. But having done that, I never find it easy, even now, especially when I've got a couple of kilos of camera on my back. But it is just so worth it. And it is, I, I'm missing it big time at the moment. 
it's funny you compare it to the sort of piece to motorways um, because often when people go skiing, they really look for anything off piece they can find, anything untouched. And the natural gravity is for like mankind to look for those beautiful things that the beautiful landscapes and the un like tarnished or motored down piece. And yeah, that's what we do when we make our play- our runs. Yeah. Yeah, I, the thing is that one thing I have learned, and it's been very interesting, lockdown's been the same when I was going out doing a lot of hiking in the summer. Peripheral vision is a lost art. I mean, I was skiing 30 years ago in, in Burby, and we, we'd stopped halfway down this sort of mobile run, and everybody was looking down at these moguls for two minutes. And I, and I just said to the people I was skiing with, I said, oh, have you had a look at the sunset behind you? And there's a stunning sunset, and they, yeah. they had seen it. And I think a lot of the photographic work that I do is very much a lot of the some of the, most of the best pictures I've taken is because I've been looking behind. And peripheral vision is something that um, people don't use an awful lot. When they're skiing on a piece, they tend to be looking down there and they can't see people on the side, which is why there's so many accidents. You know, I went, I got into ski touring and, and, and I would always have a camera with me. And, and, and I, as a kid, and when I ski racing, I used to take a camera with me because I was going to Argentina and New Zealand. It was lovely to go to these places and come back with some photographs and have some memories. Because in those days, people didn't travel much. It was, it was people enjoyed seeing them, watching them. And I could also supplement and help pay for the trip by selling some of the pictures with an article to an Austrian ski magazine, which liked to hear about training in New Zealand, training in, in Argentina. So then having got into, you know, to working and having a mortgage and having to earn a living and everything, yeah. you know, that's sort of waned. And then I, with that trip to Norway, I, I, I picked up a small new digital camera and that got me back in there. And there was one photograph I took there, which I still put in my exhibitions because it, it, it transformed my life, basically. Um, can I uh, ask you about an interesting quote I read on your website? It said that you've been caught in what some might call avalanches and others class as snow flurries. Um, what's the difference between like an avalanche and a snow flurry? Depends who you're talking to. If you're talking, <laughs> if you're talking to an expert, they'll probably call it a snow flurry. If you're calling to somebody who's been in, they'll call it a huge avalanche. Wow, okay, that's some scary. Um, what was the story of what happened on that day? Days. I think it's six or seven, what people would term, or you could term as avalanches, snow shifts, snow slides. Um, I mean, the first one I had was when I was in Marin, when I was about, I was 12 years, 12 years old, actually. We were just standing on the side of this knoll, and it just suddenly dropped down about 15 feet. It's not a lot. It's, it's more a collapse of snow. But what was, it was such a great education, because there I was standing on planet Earth, and without any warning, is if someone opened a trapdoor beneath me. That's terrifying. How did you respond to the situation? Well, I just, it, it just taught me, it was a great lesson because it taught me respect. And I could see the slab. It was a slab was of, of about a foot deep of snow that had just slid down. But it just, it was, it was the first introduction to what the mountains, the power and the, the, the danger of the mountains can be. And then subsequently I've been caught in a couple of other slides. I was skiing over with uh, Mark Shapiro, a famous photographer, and we were filming with Ali Ross once, and we just transferred from over in Tina and suddenly there was a crack and there was a big fissure of 
snow slid off. I, I, I was on it, but I, I did a 180 and skied off the side and then it slid down. It probably went down for 20 meters and then stopped. But it, if it hadn't have stopped, I didn't know what was over the other side. And if I got caught in it, it would have been a bit of a trouble. That's terrifying. Um, did it put you off, like doing future? No, no. no yeah. It just, it, it, it just. It, the thing is, it's a very good reminder. So when I'm skiing with people, um, I won't take. Uh, I, I'm, I won't. If I'm skiing with people without a guide, I will be doubly, doubly cautious and safe, and I won't look to go into areas which might look good, but um, unless you are living there unless you have a knowledge of the snow conditions over the last couple of months and what's which way the winds are being and everything you know i can't make decisions about whether you should ski there or not and i was just talking to warren smith this morning about it because there have been a lot of avalanches in verbier and uh, there have been a number of deaths and these are happening for, for two reasons one because the snow pack this year is unbelievably unusual because no, nobody's skiing on it so it's far more delicate and recently there's been a big there's been a lot of wind activity. So there is a layer of slab snow on top and that's been breaking away and kids are just going up there and, you know, YouTube kids, we call them. Um, you know, they see what they see on YouTube and they think, you know, if it's white and smooth, they can go and do it. And people are walking up places which, which will slide down and they are causing deaths. You know, people really don't have enough respect for the mountains. So that, that experience of me as a 12-year-old is what gave me the respect and, and understanding that um, and I lost my best friend, Willie Bailey. He was killed in an avalanche in Verbier. Um, That's really sad. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So what's the sort of key learning that you take away from that experience that you'd want to share with people? Is instead of spending £100 on a bottle of wine, you spend £100 going skiing with somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> skiing with mountain guides is, is, is the best thing that you can have for two reasons. One, they always know where the best snow is. Two, you, you can relax. When I go skiing with Mountain Guy, I relax. I'm not having to think about or worry about what's going on because, you know, we're in a place, we've checked out what to do. If there's, if there's, if there's any sort of, you know, debate or thought about something, that is, that is um, laid out for you. And, you know, if people, you know, people take care at the right times. And so if you're with somebody who knows what they're doing, then you'll get a better ski, you'll feel more comfortable and I'll, you'll relax more and therefore you'll be in a better position to deal with whatever happens anyway. Yeah. Um, how often do you take your camera out with you when you're on your sort of ski tours and guides, uh, with Always. the guides? Always. I, I haven't skied a day without it yet. Amazing. Where did your passion for photography come from and how did you get into it? Well, from my father. I mean, as I was saying earlier, he, you know, he, he was taking eight millimeter colour films in the Second World War, and he was a pilot, and he ended up going, he flew a lot to Tokyo, and he'd come back with all these brochures of cameras, and in those days, it was a lot cheaper to buy a camera in Japan than it was in Europe. And um, when I was about 13, 14, 15 years old, I mowed the lawn and painted the house so many times, eventually, after about 12 months, I managed to save up, and he came back with a um, Minolta SRT 101 SLR camera and that 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 you know that was me made up that's great and from <laughs> that point on um, and I've still got pictures um, 
that post on Facebook from, you know, when I was at Sanford at the races in 1968 and 1969, taking pictures of the Formula One cars. And I loved processing black and white pictures in the loft and the smell of the chemicals and did some color processing as well. So I, I really got into the, you know, I was self-taught, but I got into the technicalities of it. So that's where my passion came from. And when I work with my photography now, although it's all digital, I do tend to revert back to my foundations and my knowledge and my experience of what you can and can't do with a camera rather than now you can actually do anything with the with digital cameras and with Photoshop. In fact, many pictures you see aren't pictures. They are digital creations of images of, and a reflection of somebody's imagination, but the world does not look like that. I, I, my work is very much, this is what the world looks like to me, but not how the world, how I would like the world to look like. Which is what a lot of photography is, is, is like now, I think, unfortunately. You recently exhibited a collection of minimalistic prints from around the world at Wimbledon Fine Arts. Can you tell me about the content you captured for this exhibition? Yeah, it, it's, it's really work that I've taken over the last of 12 years of, of my ski touring. Um, started off, as I said, in, in, in Lingen Alps in, in Norway, um, being to Iceland, Japan a number of times, to Patagonia, Argentina, to Antarctica, to uh, Kyrgyzstan, and north of Ch just north of the Chinese border. And we were living in a yurt there for a week, being over to Kamchatka um, and the peninsula over in the far east of Russia, which was extraordinary. Um, some magnificent places around the Pyrenees, Keras in France, um, in Saint Foix, in Saint Anton. You've been to so many places. Yeah, and I've been to a lot of. I've skied in a lot of countries around the world. Some some people might not even know that they have skiing there. But it, the, it's a it's it's an extra burden taking him up those hills. I can tell you, <laughs> it's quite heavy. Is that heavy? Yeah, it is too heavy. It is. Too heavy. But but the thing is, the bigger it is, and the better the quality of lenses you have, the better and. My work, I like to print up six foot by four foot, ideally, you know, you see things, pictures that size, you'll never see on your phone, you'll never see on your computer. Mm. And you mentioned earlier about sort of printing in black and white. Why do you predominantly work in black and white? It was interesting. Two days ago, um, I was in the, I'd been in the Pyrenees just about a year ago and the snow was not great. We were with a wonderful, fantastic guide. Jordi Tosas, who's he's one of the most remarkable and fittest people I've ever come across, even though he smokes roll-ups nonstop. But he, I mean, he goes up a mountain twice the speed of anybody that I know. Um, and I got a lot of pictures, but nothing really stood out, nothing that I thought was dramatic. And only two days ago, I was looking at one of them, and I suddenly, I just had a... 10 minutes to spend. I was just fiddling around with it and, I, and it looked nice in color. And then I thought, well, let's try it in black, white. And I tried it in black. And suddenly this whole picture came alive. And what happens is black, in color, you get distracted by a lot of the, from a lot of the detail and a lot of the um, sense and place of a place. I mean, there's certain things that need to be in color, um, but when I do color, I'll tend to desaturate and reduce the color rather than accentuate, because I'd rather have it feel 
more like what I saw than try and create something that looks stunning but is not actually what's there. But with black eye, it, it, it does remove a lot of the clutter in your brain. And I think it, it, it's more soothing. And what I found is when people came to my exhibition is a lot of the time, some of the color pictures they didn't realize were color. Um, they would have looked flat if they'd been in black and white, but they, they just worked in the light color, I'd say. But, the, but I found people just would walk into the gallery and they just had a sensual experience about the remoteness and the tranquility and the beauty of the mountains and the perspective that to life that mountains give you. And if you have color in there, it, it, it just, it's too busy. It's too much for your mind to compute. How can people find and purchase your work? Well, there's this, if you go onto my website, it's conradbartelski.photography. Um, and there's, there's two options there. I have a sort of a, a general collection, which is the ski touring. It's the, the theater work. It's, uh, world of Colour, um, which is, you can buy prints, which are not expensive, directly that way. And then I have my second work, which is my exhibition work, which are limited edition prints, which are large scale prints. I prefer to do things, I mean, a small print for me is 30 inches by 20 inches. Um, I really prefer things to be, uh, my ideal sort of size for most people would be 48 inches by 32, which is four foot by yeah, two and a half feet, a um, little bit more. I, large scale, as I said, is what I like with that work. Those, those prints are more expensive, but they are limited editions, one of eight or one of 15. Um, and they're, they're special pieces. That's excellent. Thank you. I actually wanted to loop back around because earlier on you were talking about your broadcast career. Um, how did you sort of take the decision to retire from downhill ski racing? And was that a difficult um, transition for you into broadcasting? Yes, yes and yes. Um, most difficult decision you can make is to say, to give up what you love most. Um, but I did that the year after Val Gadena, um, I trained really hard. We didn't have, a, I didn't have a coach for six months, which is depressing and un unfortunate because I was so motivated. It would have been great to work with somebody very skilled and talented to try and do better. I didn't have that, you know, that, that frustrated me. Then my first race didn't go great. And I came to Val Gadena and I was warming up for the race and, and, and I caught an edge and I tripped over and I, and I flipped over into the trees down the side of the piece and I landed with a small on my back on a tree and, and I thought for a second I'd broken my back which was a very scary feeling but I, I managed to get myself back on my feet I got down to the hotel and I was lying in, in the hotel in, in a lot of pain and my coach said come on you got to get up to start so I said Connie Con. <laughs> I'm in pain can you get the American doctor and the American doctor came in and gave me huge painkillers and relieved some of the pain but and then I came back from that too early. And I, I did lose my confidence that year. And, and I got to my last race. Things hadn't gone very well. I was frustrated. And I had to make a decision. I'm, uh, you know, I was um, 30. I, what's ahead of me? I've got to be out and earn a living in this world now. Mm. And so I, I, I then retired. I'd been working with the BBC and, and, and David Vine with Ski Sunday because if I did a race, I'd then go down and join him in the country booth because I could help him. 
and I got on very well with him. And so I, I hoped I could pick up a bit of work with them, which I did, but the, the, the money was not enough. To, I mean, it was peanuts really, but not enough to sustain anything. And I did that for a few years, but I, I, I don't like being in front of the camera. I don't mind doing the commentary, but I, I, I don't like performing and trying to do a things which are not me. How was the transition into working for Ski Sunday? Um, was that did it feel quite natural since you had already such an involvement with them? Well, it was on the commentary side, but not when they suddenly got loaded with a microphone and, and and can you stand in for David? He's not there, and just do a quick link to camera. And I, yeah, I, you know, some people respond and like to show off in front of camera. I, that's not me. Yeah, okay. Very shy in that respect, so the transition was difficult, and, and and nobody was signing me up for any work. And eventually, I bumped into two friends. We decided to set up a business importing ski equipment, and uh, so we did that for the next, um, yeah, nearly ten years. But the, the industry kept on contracting, and we had to then shut the business down because we weren't making money. And I had to try and find do something else. And then I got. A friend who I knew from Ski Sunday invited me to come and do some work with them on um, at IMG in those days uh, as, as a researcher on an Olympic program they were doing for pre-Nagano and ended up then getting into production and learning about edit, you know, how to work with editors and, and that took off and I enjoyed and I really enjoyed being behind the camera a lot more than I did in front of the camera. So I had a very fast learning skill but I did that and then got in ended up eventually with ESPN when they launched in the UK with the ESPN Classic and um, their live channel and there was some I learned an awful lot about people in that time the good and the bad I would say it was fascinating learning and it was fascinating and I was again I did try to take a different philosophy into th and do thing you know what I, I was not somebody who'd like to do what's always been done before I would was like to try and see if we could look at doing things with a fresh take and a fresh eye and um, when people started working together with me it said look ESPN that stands for entertainment sports production network and the entertainment's the most important part of that word so I always felt to entertain people you want to surprise them slightly and refresh what they're seeing rather than just doing always the same. I think that's a great ethos. Um, as a snow sport professional and a sports commentator, what do you think the future of the industry looks like? Um, the industry is going through a big change now and COVID is going to accelerate a lot of that change. And I think what people are going to suddenly realise is that um, perhaps apres ski is not the be all end all of skiing. And if you have a look at the ski industry, the backcountry side of it, the ski touring boots, ski touring uh, bindings, skis and everything are all taking off in a big way and I think people are suddenly realizing like I did 15 years ago is that um, you go to the mountains to enjoy the mountains and yes it's nice to have a um, glass of wine a few beers and to have a laugh and to have some drink for your mates for sure I'm not saying that should go but it's a question of getting the right balance and don't yeah. waste the opportunity of being in the mountains because that is the great gift that nature gives us. And nature is a, such an essential tool to simulating the brain. Um, and it simulates in a way that nothing else in the world can do. It's very, very important. I mean, I, I was reading recently in the Shetland lines, the doctors are actually for therapy and for cures, they're, they're sending people as and sending them out to spend 
three or four hours in the nature each day because it is true it's chemically like it's proven to sort of uh, help the soul it produces good endorphins correct um, mankind needs nature i think it stimulates the brain and it stimulates creativity and it makes your brain more three-dimensional and, and a lot of our schooling and education processes are very two-dimensional and nature is such an important activity to include in yeah. the discipline and in the curriculum and it's something that um if we'd done that more maybe we wouldn't be throwing so much plastic into the seas or maybe we wouldn't be creating so much uh pollution and maybe we would actually get to the top of the uh maybe we get the the real problem in this world is that there are too many people on this planet we cannot sustain 7.8 or 7.6 billion people when i was born there's 2.9 billion people on the planet there's now 7.6 billion people on the planet um given your incredible career both as a professional skier and photographer and broadcaster what are you most proud of professionally in many ways what i'm you know, what what i'm most proud about is um back in 1986 for nine broke his back and i got involved with a charity called backup and that helps people with spinal cord injuries and or spinal you know and injuries don't necessarily just come from falling off a ladder or from ski accidents they 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 can come from spinal bleeds they can just you know happen yeah what involvement did you have for the charity well i was as one of the people that got that, that got involved at the very beginning and um i'm still involved with it now and and it's grown to be a charity that reaches out to an awful lot of people in this country and and has been able to change an awful lot of people's lives and and make what is a tough process to go through easier to digest and enable people to be who they are and who what they can be rather than feel like that the their life has been changed in a way which is too difficult to handle well it is it's a life changing situation that i perhaps a lot of people take for granted so it's fantastic that you do that work um that feels really wholesome can i ask a personal question certainly what? What are your favorite skis to ride on? Um, my favorite skis to ride on the Atomic Backland 107s. Um, it's it's a ski that's light enough to do day touring. I wouldn't say you take them out to do a week in Kamchatka, but you know if if you if you're you know when I, when I'm in Japan and the snow is very deep, it's a ski that um uh, when I'm skiing down on it, it just brings a huge smile to my face, and I just, I can just, um, I just does everything I wanted to do, and I, I just feel wonderful on it, and I can just dance Charleston, or I could do a tango, or I can do. <laughs> I certainly couldn't do that on a dance floor, but when I'm in those skis and I'm in the deep powder, then nothing stops you. Exactly. <laughs> um, what's the next project or adventure on the horizon for you? Who knows? You know, when, when we're in a war against a, 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 a invisible in, in invasion, we're dealing with, and uh, it's it, it, it's wrong to think that too much because if you do, you just drive yourself mad. I mean, a, a lot of my friends are all out in the Alps at the moment, and and they're enjoying some incredible conditions, and it's very difficult seeing some of the images on social media in the morning when you wake up. But, um, my, my, I think my own ambition, my main ambition this year is to ensure that I don't have six, another year where I, or winter, 
that I've missed skiing because that'll be the first time in six decades. So that's that's my only drive and ambition. If I'll be able to do that or not, it it might it might be I have to go up ski touring in 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 July. I don't know, but I that's that's my only ambition to try and get skiing sometime this year or this season, I should say, so I don't have another gap. Yeah. Is there anything else on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Yeah, I mean, there's so many places in the world I still love to go and explore. I mean, there's there's, there's places in Norway, there's um, there's North America in in, in Canada and 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 the United States. Love to go ski touring in Yellowstone Park. I need to get to Jackson Hole sometime. I've never been there in that area in the Tetons. Um, there's Georgia, there's Crete, Greece, Turkey, um, Nepal. Um, it just goes on and on and on. Um, back in Argentina, Chile, there are so many places. Uh, you know, my favourite place to ski is the next place that I haven't been. That's a really good like mentality to hold on to. Conrad, you've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much for joining me today on Thinking of Peace, and I look forward to seeing more of your photography online. Thank you very much. Thanks for the time. Thinking of Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.